And we've been talking about the way we worship. Today we're going to talk about the privilege of worship. From Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10, it says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Amen. Worshiping God is a privilege. And to worship Him publicly is an even greater privilege. To worship Him without fear of the government coming through those back doors and, and shutting this place down. There are many countries in the world that cannot serve God openly and publicly. On this very day in the underground church in China, millions of apostolic, spirit-filled Christians will gather quietly and secretly in homes and closets and risk their life and imprisonment just to worship Jesus with other brothers and sisters of like precious faith. There was a man by the name of Talmud's French that wrote a book about uh, oneness believers all throughout uh, in, in this century, and he actually did his best to try to number how many they are. It's called Our God is One. It's a great book. If you would like to read it and get it sometime, it's definitely worth your read. But it chronicles, to the best of his research, all of the oneness Pentecostals throughout the world, whether in or out of the UPC. And, and he chronicled that there were millions and millions of underground oneness apostolics in the country of China. Of course, there's no way to, to, to number how many there are, but estimates could reach up to 20 million people. That's in China alone. That's according to that book. So, so there are a lot of brothers and sisters today that, that cannot come and do what we do. And not to wax judgmental in any way, but there are a lot of people that are going to stand in judgment one day side by side against people just like that. There was a video circulating on Facebook a few years ago that talked, you know, that showed some Chinese Christians receiving Bibles for the first time. They were just simple little Bibles. They had to unwrap them. And, and the sheer joy that they had, and they shed tears just watching that video is, is really deeply heart, deep, deeply touching. And uh, I'm sure that many of you have seen that. But worship is a privilege. And I think sometimes that we tend to take it for granted. That it's always going to be here. That it's always going to be like this. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know the future. I'm not a prophet. But I can just kind of look out on the horizon and see kind of how things are leaning right now. And I can probably tell you that there's going to come a time, maybe in America, where it may not be able to be so public. And so we ought to take this not for granted and to really be grateful for the opportunity to come together and lift up our hands in spirit and in truth and thank God for that because worship is a privilege. He said we have an altar. Of course, the Jews had a brass altar that was, and they had, they had a golden altar too, an altar of incense, but that was regarded as sacred upon which sacrifices were offered and of the benefit to which no other nation or country could partake of. The Gentiles had no right to partake of that altar because they weren't born into being a son of Abraham. So the Jewish Christians whom this epistle was written to were not allowed to partake of that altar either because many or most of them were considered outcasts of the temple. So they were considered heretics. So... So they were not allowed to partake of that altar. Of course, they wouldn't have wanted to partake of that altar anyway. So the writer of Hebrews said, we have an altar too. 
And just as we don't have a right to partake of that altar, they don't have a right to partake of our altar. So the altar here is put for the sacrifice on the altar. Of course, the altar is the Christian sacrifice, which is Christ Jesus, with all of the benefits of his passion and death. He died. And there are a lot of benefits of, that we have received today by the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection. He goes on to say this in verse 11, for he was 13 in verse 11, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin and burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Just an interesting thought here. When he talks about the bodies of those beasts whose blood was, was poured on the altar but burned without the camp, it wasn't the actual beast itself, but it was the entrails in the flesh that was burned without the camp. And so, you know, the Bible says his flesh, which means, you know, the entrails, the insides, after it was washed with water. I'm sorry, I hope you've already had breakfast today. <laughs> and if you haven't, you know, God bless your heart. Don't think about this when you're eating lunch later today. It was washed with water, and, and it was the animal was skinned. So the Bible specifically references his flesh and his skin. And you know what? There are some things that we got to take outside and crucify with Christ. Your flesh can never please God. And you have to, you know, you can't deal with your flesh. You have to crucify it. Amen. So it was taken outside the camp. But then he goes on to say in verse 13, Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. I'm still seeking for a city. Amen. I know we're in a symbolic sense. We're already in a city of the church, but there's a literal city of God, a city of gold that I am striving to enter into. Amen. Then he says this in verse 15, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. So first, he mentions Christ as being the sacrifice and then references us as being the ones who also offer sacrifices on that same altar. So we have a right and a privilege to offer something to God that the rest of the world cannot offer. Because to offer on this altar, you must first partake of Christ as a sacrifice on that altar. Remember when Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That was in John 6 or 7. From that time, many of his disciples went away. That was a hard saying. They just could not understand that. He was referencing himself as being the Passover lamb. I am that sacrifice. You have to partake of me. In the book of Hebrews, it says we are made partakers of Christ. So when you repented of your sins and when you were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ and God filled you with his spirit... You are a partaker of Christ as a sacrifice from that point. And so from that time forward, you've got an altar that the rest of the world does not have. When I sin and I've messed up, I've got an altar I can go back to. When I need healing, I've got an altar that I can go back to. In the middle of the night when I'm worried about something and I cannot sleep, I've got an altar that I can get up and I can approach boldly that the rest of the world cannot offer up sacrifices. But more than that, in times of need, in times of worship, we have an altar. 
we've got a special way of worshiping God that the rest of the world does not have. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. But many people are more admirers of God than worshipers of God. And we've got to do more than just admire Him. We've got to worship Him. And worship Him means I'm offering myself wholly on this altar. And let my life and the way I live my life be unto God as a sweet aroma and fragrance. First Chronicles 23 and verse 1 says this. So when David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. And he gathered together all the princes of Israel with the priests and Levites. Now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 and upward, and their number by their poles, man by man, was 30 and 8,000, of which 20 and 4,000 were to set forward the work of the house of the Lord, and 6,000 were officers and judges. So that makes about 24,000 as being priests to minister whom David appointed over Solomon's temple. So that's a lot of people. That's a lot of ministers. That's a lot more than Moses had in his tabernacle. But, but they ministered around the clock. So that was 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. I was talking to somebody before church, and I said, you know... It was was one of the ushers, and I said, you look like a porter. And the porters were soldiers that stood at the entrance of the temple. And not just at the entrance, but they were stationed all around. Their job was to watch and worship. Watch and worship. And there was a master porter that would go around at nighttime. And if the porter was caught asleep, you know what he would do to that soldier that was sleeping? He would set his garments on fire. That'd wake him up real quick. Now, our ushers do not have matches and lighter fluid today. It's not to my knowledge. But if they did, I know they wouldn't catch anybody sleeping in this church. But that's likely the meaning of what Jesus meant when he said, Watch he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. Because if you don't watch, you're going to lose some things. Amen. Because God will wake you up. And that was a rude awakening. I've had some rude awakenings in my life, thank God for it. Sometimes it's been the voice of the preacher, the man of God that points his finger right at me, and it's like he's reading my mail. Like on the way way home, sometimes I've said, man, it's like he's been this little person on my shoulder and has heard everything I've thought all week, and he's just preaching right at me. You ever had that happen to you? And, uh, And so thank God for the master porter who sets us on fire sometimes. And, but there were 24,000 priests, they ministered, whom David appointed over Solomon. He said, well, that's a lot, but remember, they ministered in shifts 24 hours a day. Because worship is to never stop. Our life is to continually be worshiped to God. Right. Now, under Moses' tabernacle, it was literally just a tent. The worshiper, if you remember this from a few weeks ago, the worshiper himself would kill the sacrifice, skin it, cut it in pieces, wash the intros and legs, and then burn it without the camp. The high priest, none of the priests did that under Moses' tabernacle. But now that responsibility shifts from the worshiper to the priest. Because under Moses' tabernacle, the worshiper did all that. But under Solomon's temple, David prescribed the priests to do that, not the worshiper. So to kill the sacrifice literally became a privilege afforded only to a small sect of people within the priesthood. 
And as worshipers, Christ himself was the offer or sacrifice that was offered for the sin of the world. He literally was the high priest who offered the sacrifice and the very sacrifice himself that was offered. He was both man and God at the same time. He was our mediator in the perfect sense. But in another sense, we are priests unto God who present ourselves as the daily sacrifice. We're not going back to Moses' tabernacle where the worshiper did it. We're going now to Christ as our sacrifice under David's temple, or sorry, uh, Solomon's temple that David prescribed uh, the details for. And so under that, only the priest could do it, but we are priests unto God. And we are to offer those sacrifices because worship became more of a privilege under David's temple than it had ever been before. It, it, it became the privilege, I mean, in a, in a large sense, anybody could worship God, but in the sense of offering and sacrificing something, it had, you, you had to be a specific son of Aaron. You had to be in the Levitical priesthood. You had to have that, uh, that birthright that you were born into it. And so it became a privilege. Look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. He says, you also as lively stones. What was David's tabernacle made of but stones? You are those stones. Your lively stones are built up a spiritual house, not a house like David had that was dead, but a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are a royal priesthood. No, the priesthood was not royalty, but we are sons of a king. Revelation 1 and 5 said that he hath made us to be kings and priests with God. And we offer up spiritual sacrifices to him. The first place the tabernacle was stationed. Now, Moses' tabernacle we're talking about. After the wilderness journey and once inside Canaan was this place called Shiloh. Shiloh just means peace. And it was there, according to Talmudic tradition, it was there about 369 years until the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and they stole it from Shiloh. And King David would later recapture that Ark from the Philistines and it was in the house of Obed-Edom for a while. And then, uh, and then King David took it back and that's whenever Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the Ark and God smote him. And he named it Perez Uzzah, which means a breach upon Uzzah. And David got angry at God, but David, it was David's fault. David was not bringing the ark back in the prescribed way. So they had finally decided to get it out of the house of Obed-Edom because he realized God was blessing him there. And David became kind of jealous with a godly jealousy. I want that blessing too. Amen. You know what? When we look at other people's lives who are blessed because they're living right, it ought to kind of stir us up. We want that same blessing. Amen. But so... So it goes on that David took that ark out of that place and brought it back to Jerusalem and built his temple there and put the ark in the temple. And, when, and, and King David put that temple or that ark on Mount Zion in Jerusalem where he built this temple. And so the ark of the covenant went from a temporary dwelling place, which was in a tent, to a permanent foundation or a tabernacle. Now look at Psalm 78 and verse 67. The psalmist says this, Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph. He referencing God and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, 
but chose the tribe of Judah, the, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth, which he hath established forever. He chose David also as his servant and took him from the sheepfold. Shiloh, which was where Moses' tent first stood after the wilderness journey, they put it in Shiloh, was in Ephraim's territory. Of course, Ephraim was the, Joseph, was the son of Joseph. So that's why it says he chose not the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim. God did not choose as his permanent dwelling place, as in Shiloh, the tabernacle of Moses in Shiloh. So he did not choose as his permanent dwelling place to be a tent in Shiloh, but on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He went from a temporary tent to a permanent foundation. And the law of Moses was only temporary, but God has established his church permanently. Just as the law of Moses was contained inside of that ark, rather the Ten Commandments, and it journeyed from place to place, so it had to be a tent, it was mobile. And so it went from, from a mobile place to literally being built upon a rock on a mountain. And that's the meaning of this verse in Ephesians 2 and 19 where he says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The church has a permanent foundation because just as David's tabernacle, which is a type of the church, was built upon a rock on a mountain, so the church is also built upon a rock. But what was the original foundation of Moses' temple? Where was it erected? In the sand, in the wilderness, in the desert was where it was erected. Remember that old Sunday school song, The wise man built his house upon a rock. Wise men built this house upon a rock. Listen to this verse from Matthew 7 and verse 24. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it's founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and does not them shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. The rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. There was a house built on sand, and there was a house built upon a rock. Moses had a household. Now we're in Hebrews chapters 2 and 3. It said, every, it said that, that, that Moses had a house or a household. David had a household. Remember whenever David went to the prophet, and he said, he said prophet, I really want to build this house into the Lord. And God gave their prophet a dream that night and said, tell David, my servant, you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And the house you build me is going to not stand very long. Eventually, it's going to be torn down, and then it's going to be rebuilt again. It's going to be torn down again. And throughout history, it's going to be up and down. It's going to be torn down permanently in 70 AD by the Romans. That house you build me is going to go away, but the house that I build you is going to stand forever. Amen. So there was a house that David had, and there was a house that Moses had. And when the rains descended and the floods came, Christ was that house. And we are founded upon that rock. Just as David's temple was founded upon a rock in Mount Zion, the church has stood the test of time. The rains have came, the floods have came, the winds have blew, and it's beat upon the church, and the church has not fallen yet, and it never will. 
And you know what? I've got a house. I've got a household. My wife and my two little boys. And I don't know what you're building your house on. You can try to build it on your own good works and doing things your own way. But that's just as the law of Moses stood or tried to have that kind of a system. You could not fully keep the law of Moses by your own good works. And that's building your house on sand. But when you come to the house of God and you build your life on the principles that Jesus had, you're building your household on something that is never going to fall. It's never going to fail. You're giving your kids something that when they are at their deepest, darkest, most depressed hour, they've got something to run to. Amen. And we have privilege, the privilege of being inside the church and being kings and priests unto God to offer up sacrifices in that house. And lastly, the duties of the tabernacle were divided into three categories under David. Three categories of men. The priests only fit into one of these three categories. First of all, 1 Chronicles 23 and 6. And David divided them into courses among the sons of Levite, namely Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Every single one of the priests who served in David's tabernacle fell under one of these three sons. And all these three sons' name means something different. First of all, Gershon means to drive out. If you want to be a worshiper, there are some things that you got to drive out of your life by violence if necessary. And not only that, but worship drives out the enemy. Remember whenever David worshiped before God under King Saul and the demons were driven out of his presence. If you want some things driven out of your life, you got to learn to be a worshiper. Secondly, Kohath means obedience. My favorite. Because you can't expect to live any way you want all week and then come to church on Sunday and lift your hands and feel God. you got to mix some obedience with your worship, my friend. You can't do it your own way or the way you think it ought to be done. You've got to do it God's way. And lastly, and this is, this is amazing, Merari means bitter. And for a while when I read this, I wondered why would God name somebody in the temple whose son's would come after him, and his name meant bitter. And it means, and this is whenever I cross-reference what this word means in other places in Scripture, it's the same word as when he used it for gall or myrrh. Myrrh had a bitter, pungent taste, but produced a very sweet aroma. And it was one of the ingredients of the anointing oil of the apothecary. There were five. And that anointing oil of the apothecary, which is very expensive, was used to anoint the tabernacle and was also known as the oil of gladness. Every priest was anointed with myrrh. But when bitter things happen to you in your life, you've got to learn to let your worship be a sweet aroma to God in the midst of the bitterness of life. Remember what happened at the, at the waters of Marah. They came there in the wilderness, and, and they said, man, this water is too bitter. That word bitter there is Marah. And they could not drink of the water until Moses threw in a tree and made the bitter water sweet. And thank God there was a bloody tree that was cast into my life that turned the bitterness of my life into something sweet before God because sin is ugly and sin is bitter. And when you try to drink from... When you try to drink from everything the world has, but it's not been made sweet. You know what? Taste and see that the Lord is good today. He's good. He's good. He'll turn everything in your life into sweetness. 
And he turned my bitterness into an oil of gladness. And so sometimes in your life, God anoints you with myrrh. And the myrrh may not taste very good. It doesn't taste very pleasant right now. And, and, and it, sometimes it feels like, Lord, why are you letting me go through this? Why is this happening? But if you'll learn to lift your hands at the waters of Mara, and if you'll learn just to worship him, that he will turn your bitterness, your Mara, into something sweet. And it will be a sweet aroma, a sweet fragrance to the Lord. you got to learn to be a worshiper. you got to learn to turn that bitter stuff into an oil of gladness. Amen. You know what? He turned my my mourning into joy today. He turned my weeping and my sorrow into joy and happiness. Come on, let's stand to our feet today and let's lift our hands and thank God for that. Worship is a privilege. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, Jesus. We lift you up. 